You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. We've got quite the mix of guests on the podcast this week, starting with an Olympic gold medalist, Megan Duhamel, who not only won a gold medal, but also a silver and a bronze medal during a career as one of the world's top pairs figure skaters. Why is Megan being interviewed on the Curling Podcast, you ask? We'll explain that very shortly. I'll then spend a few minutes catching up with Lauren Rajala and Nathan Young, who represented Canada at last winter's Youth Olympics in Lausanne, Switzerland. And we'll wrap up our second episode of the season with Olympic silver medalist David Murdoch, who now serves as the Olympic curling coach for British Curling. Before getting into this week's first interview, I wanted to share a programming note with our listeners. This week will be a big week for curlers and curling fans as a couple of national federations will be making announcements that will impact the second half of the curling season, specifically Curling Canada, who are expected to announce details of their long-rumored curling bubble in which several events will take place. We will have full coverage of the Curling Canada bubble announcement on next week's podcast, as well as news from another national federation. All right, our first guest this week is a little unconventional for a curling podcast. Megan Duhamel is a three-time Olympic medalist and a two-time world champion in Paris figure skating. She joins us to discuss the recent Battle of the Blades competition, which can be loosely compared to Dancing with the Stars, but with figure skates, where she was paired with retired hockey player Wojtek Wolski. Megan chose the Sandra Schmirler Foundation as her charity of choice and donated her $50,000 prize for winning the Battle of the Blades to the foundation. Megan joined me to discuss why she chose to support the Sandra Schmirler Foundation and also to discuss what it was like to skate competitively with a retired hockey player who had never been in figure skates until three weeks before the competition started. Megan, as I'm sure you know by now, the Sandra Schmirler Foundation is a charity that is very close to the hearts of the Canadian curling community. But obviously you're from the figure skating world, so can you share the story about how you became familiar with the work of the Sandra Schmirler Foundation and what led you to select it as your charity of choice for the Battle of the Blades competition? Yeah, I'm I'm a new mom. I have a 13-month-old baby. And when she was born just over a year ago, um, I was at the hospital in Oakville. And she was born just a little bit too early and a little too small. And we had to stay in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Uh, so my baby Zoe was living in the NICU for a couple of weeks. And the hospital in Oakville, the T- Oakville Trafalgar Hospital, had a family room sponsored by the Sandra Schmirler Foundation. So When I had seen this, I I recognized the name and I was like, oh, she's an Olympic champion. And um, I did a little bit of research to find out a little bit more about uh, the foundation. And I really liked the slogan, champions start small. So I just, I had every time I would go into the family room um, to sleep at night, or it was actually just for a couple hours before I had to go back and feed Zoe in the NICU. It would bring a smile to my face seeing that sign, champions start small. I just, it was so fitting to my career and my, my sporting career. And uh, through my research, I found out all the amazing things that the foundation was doing. And when I was invited to be on Battle of the Blades and they told me I, I had to pick a charity to skate for, it was the first one I thought of. I felt like I was given a platform to raise awareness for this amazing charity that helped me during a difficult time. And they're doing so much work bringing equipment to NICUs across the country. And I just wanted more people to know about the great work that they're doing. So everything is good with Zoe now? Yeah, no, everything is good. Um, Zoe didn't actually have any health problems. She was just really small. So we're really lucky. There was a, you know, we saw a lot of other babies coming through the NICU 
with more severe health problems. Um, Zoe's lungs were strong, like everything else was good. It was just her size. So we had to stay in the NICU until she could gain weight consistently. And it did take a couple of weeks. So it was a really stressful experience, like waiting and living in the hospital. And if I hadn't been able to live in that family room that was sponsored by the foundation, I would have just been sleeping in a chair next to Zoe's crib. So, you know, that that room provided a bed and somewhere that I could just go and take a nap for a couple of hours um, every night before I had to go back and feed Zoe. So I was so grateful for that. You served as one of the professional partners in this season's version of Battle of the Blades. Uh, The obvious first question is that the competition took place in the midst of a pandemic. What did the folks at the CBC put in place to ensure that all of you would feel safe not only during show nights, but during practices and other related work involved with Battle of the Blades? Oh, dude, like being part of any production, I think right now in the middle of a pandemic is just crazy. And the amount of work that went into everybody safe as we were... um, training and performing for Battle of the Blade was so incredible. CBC and Insight Productions, they had um, a testing facility at the venue. So every single morning, our COVID test, the results would come by that evening. So you had to have a positive test that evening. It was usually around like 9 or 10 at night, so we're all like at home. Or a negative test, sorry. (laughs) That evening, if your test had been negative from the morning prior, then you could go to the rink the next day to train. We had to train in masks, um, although... We were, we've kind of found that interesting because uh, we were skating with a partner. So you're touching your partner's hands and, and face sometimes, uh, but we had to train with a mask. The coaches had a mask and goggles and a shield. Everybody that was working, like the physio or the costume people, they were in full PE and uh, proper physical distancing was maintained. Everybody except for like the team. Obviously, I stay six feet apart from Wojtek, who was my partner. We had to touching and skating together. But they did a great job with that. We had screen when we went into the rink. Everybody was separated, so we all had our own individual trailers that we could, like, if we needed to rest during the day or we wanted to eat. Um, nobody was allowed to sit together to eat. We all went into our individual trailers. I didn't come into contact with another skater apart from my own partner, and that was part of the plan, was to kind of keep every team separated. So if one team went down with COVID, it didn't affect everybody. We could still have a show and keep everything running. At one point before the show went live, there was discussion about performing in masks as well. And as much as I am like pro masks and pro safety, skating in masks and doing lifts and high intense tricks was actually very scary. Uh, My partner said at times that when he wore his mask, he couldn't see his feet. So he'd be lifting me and he didn't know what his feet are doing. And this is a hockey player who never had toe picks before. And then the mask would fall off in the middle of lifts. And it was a little bit worrisome and stressful to train with the mask. And when it was suggested we were going to perform with masks, um, all of the skaters kind of took a stance and said, you know, research shows we can perform for two minutes without a mask. We get off the ice, we put our mask right back on. It's not enough time to create any sort of spread um, from the research that is provided to us. And uh, I think that the production um, with Inside Productions and CBC understood how important your face was when you perform in a performance sport and your facial expressions are so important um, to the performance and to the audience. So we're really, I'm very grateful that in the end they allowed us to perform without masks on because I feel like the performance level would not have been the same had everybody been wearing masks. 
You and your skating partner, Eric Radford, have skated together for over a decade now, and uh, the two of you have built a trust that he'll keep you safe, whether he's throwing you or holding you up in the air. How long did you and Wojtek uh, Wolski get to practice together before the Battle of the Blades competition started, and how nerve-wracking was it, at least at first, to have to trust someone who'd never figure skated before? Yeah, that part's a little crazy. Um, We literally met three weeks before the first show like met, like we were strangers. And then three weeks before the first show, um, we're introduced to each other. And the first day we're like, okay, Wojtek, this is how you're going to do lifts. And this is how you're going to figure skate. You know, in the grand scheme of things, three weeks is not that long to master these new blades that you have with toe picks and then skating with somebody else inside your bubble, um, which obviously Wojtek had, had never done as a figure skater. So we didn't have that much time, but there was no time to waste. We like, I had to trust him right away. We had to jump in right away, full force. If we wanted, you know, to improve and bring the skills that I thought could win us the show. So like that first day that I met Wojtek, I had this like to-do list and videos that I, I had taken from YouTube and said, okay, well, we're going to learn this and this and this over the next two months. And he was like, um, you're crazy. Like, I'm not going to be able to do a single one of those things. And at the end of the day, we, we did every single one of them. So it was really exciting to see the progression. But <laughs> a lot of people, I see a lot of comments online, like people that were watching Wojtek and I's videos and whatnot. And they, they always say, oh, Megan is so fearless. But I was actually really scared. And there was a lot of times where uh, I would tell Wojtek when we were going into a new, something new that he had just learned. Uh, and I would tell him, like, I'm really nervous. He was like, well, I feel nervous. You're supposed to be the professional. If you feel nervous, then we're really in trouble. <laughs> you just have to work through it. Like, it's like, I felt nervous. I felt uncomfortable. But it's kind of like jumping in cold water. You just have to do it. And it gets more comfortable from there. Now, outside of the fact that uh, most of the curling community was voting for the two of you each week, uh, what do you believe helped set you and Wojtek Wolski apart during the competition and allowing you to come out the winners? Which I really appreciate. I know that the whole curling community was behind us, and I appreciate it so much because the votes from the public are very important. Um, Of course, the audience sees the judges' scores, but um, the production takes the votes that have come in online. So I appreciate the support and I saw it on social media from the curling community. And that was amazing to feel like I was part of like another sporting community. Like it, it was really nice. I think that one of the reasons Wojtek and I were able to succeed at the end of the day, um, there was many reasons. I feel like we were a very versatile team. Every single week we came out with a different style. So we didn't just get comfortable in one style, which we kind of saw some of the teams do. We, you know, we did rock. We did uh, theatrical with Halloween when we were Little Red Riding Hood and the Big, Big Bad Wolf. We did country. We did a nice, like, emotional slow piece. We kind of went through every different angle, as well as I think we, we combined that diverse choreography and musicality with intense, explosive pairs skating tricks. And I think that the combination of all of that kind of allowed us to stay on the show till the finale. So if anybody was watching, they'll have seen that we never won an episode. Um, Every week we finished second or third. We were always second or third. And our coach, Paul, he said, don't worry, you only need to win once. It's the last week. That's the week you want to win. And I was like, oh, Paul, I want to win every week. (laughs) 
And uh, he was like, uh, he had to keep reminding me, like, just calm down, Megan, you need to win once. And uh, at the end of the day, he was right. But I really think it was our, our diversity with our choreography and our musicality, as well as the explosive Paris tricks, the lifts, the twists and the throws that we did. And we were consistent. We delivered every single time. And I think that, you know, that all worked out in our favor. Did the fact that you've done some coaching since your retirement from competitive curling make it easier for you to help Wojtek through the process of learning the different moves and routines during practice? My experience in coaching definitely helped me. So we also had a professional coach, um, Paul Martini, who was a world champion pair skater in 1984. He was our team's coach for the show so I guess like you could say Paul and I co-coached Wojtek but what I had to be careful and something I I was very mindful of was that I wanted to coach Wojtek I wanted to help him learn but I also had to be his partner I, I needed to support him and I felt like I've learned this through my own experience. It's a fine line and I couldn't always be coaching him and harping on him because I didn't I wanted him to view me as his partner and as his equal, because in order to be a great team, both partners had to feel valuable. And I knew that if I was constantly on his case, telling him what he's doing wrong or this or that, or do this more, do that more. Um, it would come across like everybody's like almost everybody is coaching him. Um, so, you know, I gave my, my two cents coaching views in a supportive and positive way when it was necessary. And I relied on Paul to do it the rest of the time. So therefore, Wojtek and I were more, like I said, more of an equal, more of one unit, you know, just watching different pair teams over the years, um, whether I'm coaching them or I was training with them. When one partner wants to be the coach, it creates a very awkward and uncomfortable dynamic. So, and I, I told Wojtek at one time, I was like, I'm trying not to coach you too much. And he's like, no, just tell me, tell me, like, give, give it to me. Now, you broke your nose during practice at one point, And in true hockey player fashion, you were back on the ice in no time to perform your routine on that week's episode. Can you tell us about what happened and how you may have had to adjust? Because I'm sure it made things more complicated for you and Wojtek that week. Absolutely. This is kind of like drawing back to that training in masks. We were trying to... We were trying to learn and master the double twist, which we were using in week three, and we used it again in week five and in the finale. A very difficult skill for an experienced skater to learn, so very difficult for Wojtek to kind of grasp. I think that was the hardest thing he had to learn. Um, and we were doing it with our masks on, so both of us had our vision hindered a little bit. And uh, during practice, on the catch of the double twist, so anybody who doesn't know what that is, Wojtek throws me over his head, I rotate twice and then he has to catch me like kind of in front of his face um, or chest and put me down. And when he caught me, my, my face collapsed on his shoulder. So just um, above my lip and underneath my nose shoved up underneath, underneath my nose as it smashed on his shoulder. And he put me down and like, I started tearing up and I, I skated away right away. Like I just went by myself and I was like, Oh my goodness, are my teeth okay? And I felt my teeth and I was like, okay, my teeth are fine. And then I was like, is my nose bleeding? And my nose wasn't bleeding. So although I was in an immense amount of pain, I was like, oh, okay, like it must be fine. And then I went back to Wojtek and I was like, let's do it again. And we did another one. We did it better. Uh, and I didn't think much of it. I was having a lot of discomfort in my nose and in my cheek. Um, and one of my eyes had kind of gone blurry a little bit, but uh, I kept training that whole day. And then I got in my car to go home and I looked in my nose and I can kind of see uh, my septum pushed over to the side 
And in one of my nostrils, there was like no space. It was just like squished. And I was like, oh, this probably isn't good. So I called the the doctor that's working for the show and they got me in to see a sports medicine doctor right away. I went straight to Toronto. I saw them. They did some tests. Um, they said it was definitely fractured um, and that, you know, I, I had a broken nose and I would probably need septic septum reconstructive surgery. So I was like, oh my goodness, how can I fit this in, in the middle of Battle of the Blades? And uh, the, the doctor he had suggested he could put my nose back in place there on the spot, but because it had been all day that had passed, um, he said like, if it was right in the moment, it would be easy to reset. But he said, because all day had passed, it was going to be difficult to reset. He thought he might be able to do it, but he had told me it's going to be very painful for me. And I was there alone. And this doctor was a stranger. And I was like, I don't think I want to do that right now. So um, at the end of the day, I'm still waiting to hear back from a surgeon. Apparently it's, Right now, it's very difficult to get in to get your nose fixed um, because of the, the limitations going into clinics and hospitals right now. So I actually haven't got any work done on it. I'm, I'm waiting to get it. Um, they're probably going to have to break it again to, to reset it. The thing that bothered me the most after that accident for about a week was my right eye was blurry. And I think that there was a lot of swelling in my, my cheekbone. And uh, my right eye was really blurry. And I was thinking that I probably need to go have a scan done on on my cheekbone or something. Um, but I guess once all the swelling inside went down, my vision came back and, and now I feel fine. And I had to be really mindful because I was like, oh my goodness, I, I definitely can't complain about this because first of all, Wojtek has broke his neck and came back and, and skated. And I was like, he has probably broke his nose so many times in the middle of a hockey game and just continued playing. So I was like, I can't complain about this. I can't complain. I don't want any sympathy. We're just pushing forward and moving on. <laughs> And finally, Megan, I really can't have you on the From the Hack Curling podcast without asking you if you've ever been out curling. You know what? I, I tried curling once, and that was about two or three years ago. My skating partner, Eric, um, he's a, a curler, and he loves curling, and he played in a lot of leagues in Montreal, like adult leagues. So they were honoring Eric and I during a bond spiel, um, this like adult men's league that Eric played in. So Eric and I... Eric and I were being honored there and uh, I got to try my hand at curling. And I mean, I can't say I knew what I was doing, but I had a lot of fun. And when I left there, I was like, oh, maybe I need to join an adult curling team. That was really fun. I enjoyed learning about curling at the Olympics and talking to the curlers. And I really love the strategy behind curling. So I, I was really intrigued with the strategy behind it. And after giving it an, giving it a go, I mean, I wasn't very good, but I, I was able to uh, to be decent enough that the strangers around me that, that are experienced curlers were impressed, I guess I could say. <laughs> this season from the hack has not approached any of our usual podcast sponsors because we understand that the pandemic and the limited curling season so far has made it difficult on most curling stakeholders. That said, I want to thank Hardline Curling, Jet Ice, Ashram Curling Supplies and Equipment and the Curling Zone for their support over the years. And we look forward to working with them again when the curling community and the world as a whole for that matter have turned the page on the COVID-19 pandemic. Next up this week are Lauren Rajala and Nathan Young, who represented Canada at last winter's Youth Olympics. I spoke to these two young athletes earlier this fall to discuss what it was like representing Canada in Lausanne, Switzerland. And Nathan shares what it was like winning a Youth Olympics mixed doubles gold medal with Lauren Nagy, a young curler from Hungary. 
Now, before we get to the curling portion of the Youth Olympics, uh, Lauren, I have to ask you about being the flag bearer for Team Canada at the opening ceremony of the 2020 Youth Olympics. When did you find out and were you even aware that you were up for that honour? So I got the call on Christmas Eve that I was going to be um, the flag bearer for Canada. And I knew that I was like, in the running because um, Curl Canada wanted to nominate me, um, put my name in. I knew I was in the running. I just didn't know if I was going to get picked or not. And then I found out on Christmas Eve, and I was like, that's just a great early Christmas present for me. <laughs> I'll take that. And then, uh, yeah, going into it, I was, like, pretty nervous, but I like knew what I was going into, I guess. They informed me well. Were you more nervous walking into the stadium with the flag or when you got on the ice for your first game of the curling competition? Probably for the game, honestly. The nerves kind of left when I was um, getting ready to walk in with the flag. They kind of went away then. Because as soon as I went out, it was just super surreal and I, like, forgot all the nerves. But I think I was a little bit more nervous for the game because, you know, representing your country is a nerve-wracking experience. Nathan, for those in our audience that may not be aware, how is the team that will represent Canada in the curling event at the Youth Olympics chosen? And did the four of you get much time to practice together in the lead-up to the Youth Olympics? So, Frank, the selection process went like this. Uh, athletes who played at the under-18 nationals and at the Canada Games were eligible to be selected to play on the Youth Olympic team. Um, if you were age-eligible, you submitted an application with, a, with some essays, some reference letters, etc. And Crowing Canada reviewed these applications and then they scouted you at the under-18s and at the Canada Games. So... Uh, for example, I was scouted at the Canada Games. Lauren was scouted at the under-18s and the Canada Games. And so that's how, that's how it was selected. Uh, in terms of practicing and, and playing with each other, we got together four times before the Games. Um, once in Newfoundland, once in Kitchener, once in Ottawa, and once in Edmonton to practice and, and to play. Uh, which, if you think about it, really isn't a whole lot of time. You know, you're playing with these uh, three other people who, you know, speaking for myself, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, I, I hadn't uh, met these people before. So you're trying to fast track a process and become really close with each other uh, to prepare yourself for such a big event. And I think uh, with this, this group of four in particular, I think we did, uh, I think that that process went very well. That's not really much time together before heading overseas to represent your country at an international event. Did you ever really get a chance to find your groove as a team before actually heading to Switzerland? That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I think the first time we played together was at the uh, Ottawa Superspiel in, Ottawa in, uh, Ottawa in October. And uh, that was the first time you, you, we, we played together. So, you know, you can practice with each other all you want to, but it really is important figure out each other on the ice what what people want to hear what they don't want to hear and so i really think that trip was very beneficial but i wouldn't say it was until november when we were in edmonton and we that's where we decided our lineup that's where we decided who would play skip and who would play third etc and i really think that trip was probably well, it was the final time we, we saw each other before going to Switzerland. And I really think that uh, that trip, we really tied everything together. And, you know, here's what we've been working on for the last uh, three or four months. Here, here is our team lineup. This is, what, this is what we're going to do. That way everybody knew their role. Everyone knew, you know, if they were lead, they were skipped. They knew their role on our team. And uh, 
so I would say that in in November that's when we uh, that's when we finally kind of tied tied up that process. Lauren, I can appreciate that your team was focused on the competition, but one of the goals of the Youth Olympics is to expose participants to other cultures. And you happen to be in a very scenic part of the world, so I'm wondering if you and your teammates got a chance to be tourists at any point during your time in Switzerland and taking some of the scenery and the tourist attractions in the Lausanne area. The thing is, so our travel from Lausanne to where we were curling in Champery was about two hours, I'd say. So we were on trains, and um, the scenery, when you're looking out of the train window, is just amazing. So that was something that was super surreal to take in. And then once you got into Champery, that village is super beautiful. It's a really, like, quaint uh, village to be in. And uh, we got to tour around there a little bit. During the round robin, I'd say we were a little bit busier just because um, travel back and forth was two hours. So we have a two-hour game and then two-hour two-hour travel back and forth. So there wasn't a lot of time to take um, everything in, in Switzerland, but the travel itself was something to take in. Um, I'd say after the round robin, though, like myself, I was eliminated from the mixed doubles parts after the first game. So I got to go with my family and travel around Lausanne and see all the tourist attractions and all that kind of stuff. So there was time to get in, but for like Nathan, he didn't have a lot of time to get touristy stuff in. <laughs> so Nathan, your team went undefeated in the round robin and faced Japan in the quarterfinal. The game came down to last rock. Can you take me back to that game? Tell me about how well the team played that day and how close you came to pulling off that victory. First of all, you know, I will, I'll comment on the round robin for a second. We, we did go undefeated, but we had some really tough games that came down to the last rock. And uh, a lot of those games we were trailing and had to, had to meet and say, all right, guys, we've got to pick it up here. And, uh, and we managed to pull them out. So then we get to the round robin and we get to the playoffs and we're in the quarterfinals. Definitely better in that game than we did in the first game. So that was a confidence booster. And, you know, I'll kind of fast forward right to the last end because the last end was was kind of surreal. We had a, uh, and Lauren, you can correct me on this, but a five or six <laughs> rock measure after the end was, was complete. Uh, yeah, something like that. Basic, basically, if we won the measure, then we would have won the game or something. I can't quite remember how it went down, but five rocks were, were being measured at, at the same time or something like that. Anyway, it ended up going into an extra end. And you asked how well do do I think the team played? And first of all, on one of Lauren's shots, first or second shot, perfect kick shot right away, right off the right off the bat. <laughs> and uh, so you you ask how we played. I think the team played really good. I know that Lauren's been in in important finals before the under 18s and Canada Games, and and Emily has been in the in the under 18 national final, and and Jaden has done really well too at the under 18s and. We all had some some experience in in a game like that, and uh, I was really impressed uh, with the three of them. And uh, uh, which you know, I, I was of course I was impressed with them. I mean, they're they're fantastic curlers, and uh, you know, I felt really fortunate to be able to play with them and uh, and to be in a quarterfinal game, knowing that. These are my three other teammates. It was really reassuring. One of the interesting parts about curling at the Youth Olympics is that once you are done with the mixed competition, you are teamed up with a player from another country to compete in mixed doubles. Lauren, can you explain how they decide who plays with who in mixed doubles? So basically just a ranking system based on how we did in the team events. So the way it fell, um, I was ranked. I don't remember like where I was ranked, 
but um, we were basically paired up, you know, like someone ranked higher with someone ranked lower, and then they're trying to match it that way. So I was paired with a, a boy from Slovenia, and he was the nicest boy. And a lot of um, teams had to work with the, um, like, language barriers. And fortunately enough for me, um, he spoke, like, very good English. I was really surprised. So there wasn't a lot of trouble with that. But, yeah, other than that, it's just a ranking system paired that way. Nathan, you got paired with a young lady from Hungary named Laura Nagy. And what many people may not know is that her parents are very good mixed doubles players who once won the silver medal at the World Mixed Doubles Championship. How quickly did you get a sense that Laura knew the mixed doubles discipline very well? I didn't know that, Frank, until the team was chosen and our coach, Helen Radford, who was assigned to our team, as she said, uh, when she told me, you know, Laura's parents are a, a world mixed double silver medalist. And I said, well, there we go. That's fantastic because I didn't have a whole lot of mixed doubles experience. So knowing that uh, Laura had a lot of experience and, uh, knowledge of the game was was a huge confidence booster going in plus uh, we headed off really early just uh, got along very well and in in the practice before the mixed doubles uh, figuring how, how each other throws uh, how each other throws um, was was really beneficial one thing I, I found about Laura she was very relaxed uh, kind of on the ice and through very consistently, we knew where to put the drum each time for her and, and for myself. We figured that out pretty early, and that really helped us throughout the week. You and Laura Nagy ended up winning the gold medal in mixed doubles. Uh, perhaps you would have preferred winning the gold with your Canadian teammates in the mixed competition, but winning the mixed doubles competition with Laura must have been a great feeling, allowing you to end your Youth Olympics experience on a winning note. We just thought of the mixed doubles event as kind of a bonus after the team competition. You, you play your team competition, you play hard. And then the mixed doubles is a bit of fun at the end. But you can't lose sight of the fact that it is still a chance to, to win a medal. And so after our, our quarterfinal loss, you know, we, we knew that the, we, we could not win a medal in the team event and we'll, because we were eliminated. And I remember saying to my mother, I'm saying, I'm not leaving here without a medal. And, um, you know, lucky enough to be paired with Laura and have a fantastic uh, partner and really get along early. And then... Playing games where you know it's single elimination, where if, if you lose, you're gone, uh, is a different game. And it's, uh, it's just a matter of – it's not a matter of, okay, maybe we can, you know, lose this and win the next one. It's a matter of we need to win this game. We need to play to win for, the, for, to, you know, for our lives here or, or we're going to be eliminated. And uh, – Winning six games in a row was uh, was fantastic and, and a great feeling. And it was nice to, you know, finish the Youth Olympic Games on a winning note. But when I think back to the games, you know, the gold medal is probably, you know, a third or fourth on the list. There's a lot of other things that come before, before it. And uh, although it was uh, just an, an absolutely fantastic uh experience. Now let's move ahead to this season for a few moments. Obviously we're living in a strange time with not much curling going on right now. Laura, how have you been coping with the pandemic and what impact has it had on your season so far? Well, at the very beginning um, it all happened so quickly, right? So we all we were out of school and I just found that out like two days before that we were going to be out for three weeks and then it kept getting postponed and we just didn't end up going back at all. And then with the curling um, 
I was supposed to go to, well, Nathan and I were both supposed to go to the Nationals here in Sudbury. And that ended up getting canceled. So that was just, it was heartbreaking because for me, living in Sudbury, that was supposed to be like our, you know, a hometown event for me and having hometown crowd and family watching and everyone being there, you know, cheering us on and seeing friends and, um, you know, getting to see the, hopefully the youth Olympic team again. So that getting canceled really put, you know, damper on things. But um, it took me a little bit to get back into um, everything. Online school was difficult to start up because I wasn't, I'm not, I've never done online school. I'm not used to it. So, I mean, finding the motivation to do that was a difficult challenge, I'd say. Um, but as soon as I got into the swing of things, it was, it was better. So now my team and I, I'm on a new team now. So we've been uh, doing video calls and things like that. Um, so that should be fun. I'm super excited for the season. Um, the only thing that sucks is wondering if we're going to be lo- losing a year of eligibility. Same question for you, Nathan. How have you been coping with the pandemic and how has it impacted your season so far? Yeah, well, first of all, living on an island uh, has never been so beneficial. Uh, I think it was made for a pandemic. Uh, we were, were very lucky here to, that our government acted quickly. Kind of, we, we closed down the borders. Uh, kept out the virus uh, mostly, and aside for from one major outbreak, we have done a really great job of 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 uh, containing the spread of the virus here. Kind of like Lauren, you know, it was so sudden. Uh, school was canceled. The curling season was canceled. Everything was canceled. We were stuck at home, and then getting used to online learning and things like that. Fortunately for me, uh, you know, I have I have a lot of great teachers that uh, really made the transition as seamless as possible and kept uh, teaching in an effective way. And, uh, and I'm really thankful for that. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of this, in terms of this season, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's hard not knowing what you're going to be able to do. Uh, luckily uh, we do have the Atlantic bubble and uh, there are some uh, junior spiels happening in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick that, uh, that we're signed up for and looking forward to uh, competing in having the curling season end early and maybe start a little bit later, it, it's opportunity to work on other parts of, um, of, of your game. For example, uh, your physical condition, you know, going to the gym maybe a few extra times or uh, uh, working on the mental aspect of the game. So, you know, although we can't physically do the, you know, practice the sport as we could have in the past, there's still, you know, new opportunities to to take advantage of and uh our team you know we've been staying in contact and uh a lot of people on my team golf so we've been out on the course a few times and uh uh so you know just just trying to make the best of uh, of the situation nathan both you and lauren were named recipients of the for the love of the game scholarship uh, earlier this season for those in our audience who may be unaware can you share what those scholarships are all about and what was involved in applying for the scholarship the scholarship has been uh, going on for many years now, and uh, it's, you know, when you, you think of curling scholarships, uh, you know, the Sandra Schmiller scholarship definitely comes to mind, but also uh, for the Love of Curling Scholarship. Uh, they're really the pinnacle uh, in our space anyway. And uh, so to be, you know, to have applied and, uh, and to have received this scholarship is really a, a true honor. So the, um, the application process was, was really simple. You uh, submit an application package with, uh, you know, some essays and uh, some information on your, 
your academic and career aspirations. And, uh, you know, you also put in, uh, obviously, some information. And uh, you send it off to the selection committee, and they review the applications, and um, and they, they make their winners. Uh, this year they had a record number of, of applicants, which is great to hear because, you know, they, they do put a lot of work in this, into this scholarship, and, uh, and to have the interest in it is fantastic. So the scholarship kind of wants to recognize, you know, a lot of things, some, you know, some academic uh, success, some, some curling success, and some community success and involvement, and uh, give funding to, to those, uh, to the recipients, so that they can manage the balance of school curling and community involvement uh, that much easier for the coming year and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, continue to, to give back and stay involved. And uh, I know certainly this, this will be a big help for me and I plan to do just that. And finally, Lauren, uh, how did you find out you had won the scholarship and how will it help you throughout this season? Yeah, like Nathan was saying, um, there I think there was about 80-some applicants, so just to be chosen of one of those 10 um, is super, super surreal to me and a true honor, really. It's definitely something I've been planning on applying for when I got into university because, you know, if you think of curling, that's the one of the scholarships you think of, like Nathan was saying. So, um, I, yeah, I got a phone call. Um, it was I think it was late at night, and, um, yeah, I, it was just super amazing to get that phone call. My final guest this week is 2014 Olympic silver medalist and two-time world champion David Murdoch, who currently serves as the Olympic head coach for British Curling. David joined me to discuss the impact that the pandemic has had on the country's podium program, which consists of the top teams in the country, including teams skipped by Eve Muirhead, Bruce Mowat, Ross Patterson, and others. We also discussed the impact the pandemic has had on curling clubs throughout Scotland. In what has become a sign of the times uh, we live in, David, I like to start my interviews these days by asking how you're doing and how have you and the family been coping with life during a pandemic? Uh, yeah, Frank, it's been, it's been challenging, hasn't it? It's um, just not getting to do the things that you love doing, not getting to uh, see, get out, see your friends and family. Um, you know, I think everyone has the same ideas around that where, um, you know, you, you are just stuck at home a lot more and uh, you're just having to keep yourself busy with with what you can do and given the circumstances. Um, yeah, from a personal point of view, it's um, things have been pretty busy for us. We've, we've moved house recently, which was quite a challenge considering COVID and, and everything around that with, uh, with, with moving just uh, challenges getting from one house to the next. So yeah, it's been, it's been a busy time for sure. Now, I realize that different countries are dealing with the pandemic with different approaches and protocols. Uh, what's it like in Scotland at the moment? What type of protocols and the restrictions are in place? Throughout the throughout the country, we've got different tiers at this moment in time. So where we live, where our National Academy is, it's actually on one of the highest restrictions. It's, it's level four. Um, we have a few cities, so part of Glasgow um and uh heading up to the northeast is, is is level three so you know there is there is a bit of difference around the country further in the south it's back down to level two um and, and those restrictions in terms of level four were introduced last week where um that's been the closure of more restaurants shops and and really one of the tighter restrictions that's it's made, you know pretty much everyone working from home again so it's been really challenging, um, certainly for businesses here where they have been open because we were back to level one, level two, you know, the end of the summer there. 
and uh, businesses opened and now they're having a shot again. So, yeah, it's getting, it's getting very difficult uh, and it's certainly been extremely difficult for curling where the businesses opened, just like everything else, uh, installed ice and went through a bit of a period where they opened for a while and then they shot for a, a couple of weeks because the restrictions changed. They opened again and then it's been back to back to square one. And now because they can't continue that, we're now seeing that some of the rinks are taking their ice out because we, they just can't continue to cover the power costs and, and not get the income from, from footfall for people coming in the building. So extremely difficult. Getting to curl this season certainly hasn't been easy for the teams in your podium program. You haven't traveled into other parts of Europe so far and obviously haven't been to Canada or the U.S. What have you been doing to give your podium program team some competitive game action? Yeah, it's been, it's been really challenging. Um, we, you know, Early season, we're so used to spending huge amounts of time in Switzerland and around Europe, obviously in Canada for, for vast amount of weeks. Um, and, you know, the way it was playing out for a while, it's looking very hopeful that we'd go to Switzerland. We probably knew that Canada was going to be chalked off. That was, that was quite clear early on. And we made some, some adjustments to calendar to try and play, play in Europe. Um, and the difficulty we had was every time we we booked flights or tried to get to Switzerland, it was either you know through another country, so stopping in the Netherlands to then jump on the next flight to get there, or you know as laterally panned out in terms of Switzerland, then becoming um, a, a red country where um, there was going to be quarantine again. So yeah, it was it was very difficult where we we desperately tried to get our athletes in comp because you know that's that's what we want to see as coaches that's what you know ultimately we want them to do is be tested against the world's best and um yeah it was it was just really difficult for the athletes because they they, they were all very much last minute decisions that again we couldn't go um so what we did do was try and try and make the best of the situation which was we've got some some great teams in our country we've got a great facility now with with great ice and we decided just to host some uh, d- domestic competition with uh, with our program teams and um i think the athletes have you know deserve huge credit um for being adaptable in the situation and they've really taken to these tournaments and, and realized that well we're not going anywhere now so bring bring your best bring your best to these tournaments and um they put on a good show of curling and, and we've saw some some great competition recently the competition between the top men's teams in scotland must be fierce because you have three teams that are currently ranked in the top 20 in the world and a fourth team that is inside the top 30 i'm more curious about the women's side where you have eve muirhead and then somewhat of a drop-off behind her i know gina aitken and her new lineup have shown they can compete with eve and will likely move up rapidly in the world rankings once the curling schedule gets back to some normalcy but all in all the women's program in scotland at the moment does not show the depth that exists on the men's side is there a concern that the current situation might impact Eve Muirhead's team more than anyone else because they simply don't have many teams, at least women's teams, at their level to compete against under the current restrictions. Yeah, I think it's certainly something the women's side we, we need to always be mindful of is, you know, in the men's side, we, we, have, we have a huge amount of teams in the, the top 15, 20 in the world. And that's not the case with our women's side. Um, but we have seen with with the new Gina Aitken team where they, um, they actually um, came off quite strong off the back of the summer a new team, and uh, they won our first competition. So they actually they did challenge uh, Team Muirhead in that first one. 
uh, Team Muir had then got their their own back in the, in the next event, which concluded uh, a couple of weeks ago. So so we're already seeing just um, by having a second podium team that that's that's going to be good for both teams. Good to have challenge. Good to have competition for places uh, within the squad. Um, in terms of your your comment around. You know how do we how do we keep the bar high? How do we you know allow so say Team Muirhead, say Team Aitken to you know feel playing against some of the top teams? What we have done is actually we've got the the women to play against the men. So um, regular regular weeks um, throughout our training, we're seeing Team Parson, Team Mowat, Team Ross White play against uh, play against Team Aitken and Team Muirhead. So just trying to keep it quite fresh, you know, keep a new challenge, make sure the shot making is high, the the strategy is is strong. So just keeping that transfer between the men's and the women's is is going to be vitally important to us. That's an interesting approach. Having Team Muirhead and Team Aitken compete against their men's teams will allow them to stay in that competitive, grinding type of mindset, which is difficult to do when you're mostly competing against teams that aren't really at the same level as you. Well, that's it. You know, just having that strong competition is, is just keeping the bar very high. And and the same applies to, you know, all our training with our coaches. Um, you know, they're always seeking to to push athletes to to be the best. You know, seek seek excellence. That's definitely something we talk about where we're continually striving to be better. And that's better in training every day. If you can replicate training every day, then you're going to transfer that transfer those skills throughout into your competition um, shot making as well. So, yeah, certainly something we're pushing on a, on a daily basis. There's obviously no good time for a pandemic. However, the timing of COVID-19, at least from a curling perspective, could not have been much worse. Uh, this would have been the, the third season of the Olympic cycle, and, and that's typically an important season for national federations, some of whom select their Olympic representatives at the end of the third season, while other federations find themselves in the final stages of identifying which teams will participate in their Olympic trials. What kind of impact has the timing of the pandemic have on the process you would plan to decide who will represent Great Britain at the next Olympics. Yeah, obviously it's it's difficult with uh, the fact that we not only this season we're missing out on seeing what results the teams would bring by being on the tour so that that would give us data where we can start to analyze the you know can the teams beat the other top teams in the world because that's that's the way we need to approach this where do we have a team or several teams that can beat the, the your Olympic contenders really. So the difficulty I think we had too was we didn't really get a chance to see what what would have came out of the end of last season. So um, with three world championships there, we're, with three teams going, we're excited to see the training that we'd done, the work that they'd individually done as as athletes and as teams to see what would have what would have came out of that? What would have been the data? What would have been the learnings that we'd have? What would we need to do next with either that team or the teams under them and, and apply into into a schedule for next year and and that was, that was really unfortunate for you know only for us i'm sure it was the same for every other country where you didn't have that to go by so it didn't really give us a chance to go well what's what's working well what do, what do we need to improve what don't we need to do but you only need to um look forward and adjust and be adaptable and and i think that's where we are now so you know everything everything's thrown out the window right there's there's no plan now in terms of this is the way you would have done it and to lead up the olympics we just don't know and all we can do is hopefully 
forecast what will happen in, in the short term. Long term, we're still very much the unknown. We hope it will return to normal, but we just don't know. Um, so we've, we've just got to really chop that up a little bit more. So focus on little blocks at a time, knowing, well, this is what we can do now. This is what we should focus on. Here's, here's what we can work with. And, uh, you know, it's, that's a difficult part. It's a difficult part for the athletes. It's a difficult part for the program where we just need to make sure we keep motivation high. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I still firmly world championships at the end of this year. It's Olympic qualification. And, um, you know, every, just keep everybody focused on the drive towards that. David, over the past several weeks, I've had the opportunity to speak with many different curlers and and many of them have told me that what has surprised them the most during the pandemic is how mentally taxing it's been on them. Elite athletes tend to be very structured, very routine oriented, and much of their schedule tends to be built around curling. I know you can't speak to what any of the players might have been feeling individually, but I'm sure you've spoken to many of them and have a good sense of what they've been going through. What are the podium program athletes uh, that you kind of oversee doing to try and fill the void in their usual routines created by the cancellation of events and the resulting change in their schedule and their life balance. It's certainly something that as, as a program we had to, you know, really heavily discuss and think about what is that content going to be because um, as all the teams are uh, that you'll see that fly around the world, Frank, are, are part of our program. Um, and, and we discussed our, our options in terms of... Um, you know, how we view the season in terms of how we're going to cut it up, how are we going to interact with our support services, what are going to be the what are the goals of the team, engage with the teams where we try to track and analyse all the, the strengths, weaknesses, performance goals, and, and try and wrap that up into, well, let's let's see that as a block of work, let's see that as a training block now, or let's look focus that as that's a season-long uh, learning part of um, our training in the in the national academy. So, yeah, it's it's been it's obviously you know a lot of work's been put into by the coaches, by the staff that we have. Uh, there's been great ideas came from the athletes about how can we stay motivated um, and try and you know just try and keep that keep keep that going, keep that good feeling, keep the good culture going that we have in the academy, and um, try and raise the bar of of everyone in the building. And I think if we can do that, it's it, it's the only way to take our, you know, focus off the fact that, well, we should have been in Canada or we should have been in Japan. We should have been in Switzerland. All we can do just now is, is recognize that it is what it is. And what can we do that would give us every opportunity um, going forward to be ready? And, and I think that's the way we just have to look at it now. There's nothing we can do about it. What can we do to be absolutely on point, be ready? We've done everything we possibly can on a daily basis. Our, all our athletes are in every single day for a couple of sessions, plus um, other support staff training that, that we can introduce to them. And uh, just make sure that we're, we're good to go. Uh, and I think that's what it comes down to. One of the big problems facing teams in Canada this season is that the lack of events has made it difficult for teams to provide their sponsors with the type of return on investment that had been promised. Now, most of the major sponsors for individual teams have been understanding, considering the current situation, but it's proven difficult for some teams to find additional sponsors, especially when they aren't really sure what they can offer to those sponsors as far as visibility is concerned during this season. I realize that the teams under your program are well supported, but they still are dependent on some sponsors to help offset the 
costs of essentially being full-time curlers. Have any of your teams been dealing with difficulties in retaining or attracting new sponsors? Yeah, I think it has been difficult for our athletes, actually. I think our teams and most teams you know, in Europe are a little bit different. There's maybe not the, the huge level of funding uh, from you know, private sponsors compared to, you know, say in Canada. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there, there is still a little bit of support that, that I'm sure a lot of these teams get from some, some terrific sponsors that they have. And on top of that, you know, a lot of our teams do pull in a reasonable amount of, of prize money as well. We look at the, the bond spiels around the world, that the money that you can, that you can win, the grand slams, there's, there's, um, there's a lot that, um, you know, the athletes can then really pull in towards their uh, their team towards that. Um, for our athletes, so they, they, you know, there is a lot of them on Athlete Performance Awards. That's something that's given from uh, UK Sport to offset some of the, you know, the, the work and allow them to dedicate themselves full time. But um, yeah, you know, I think, I think you're right in terms of there is, there is a lot there where the they are missing out on, on a multitude of, of finance that's just not available. Um, so it's difficult. It's difficult for them. And uh, I'm sure they'll be super excited about getting back into competition and uh, hope to get some of those dollars back in their, their back pockets, I think, again. Now, typically on this podcast, we speak mostly of what is happening at the elite level in curling. However, it's clear that the pandemic is also having a potentially disastrous impact on curling clubs throughout the world. Recently, some of Scotland's more recognizable curling figures took to the internet to address the fact that many curling clubs in Scotland are at risk of closing and perhaps never reopening. Can you speak to the current reality being faced by the curling clubs in Scotland? Yeah, I know there's there's so many ricks just now that are in tier four restrictions, which means that they've literally had to close the doors, and and because some of them um, just can't operate and and finance the rest of the season with with this yo-yo effect, so they would maybe come out of tier four down to three, so they'd be allowed people in the building, but again heavily restricted. You know the numbers just don't add up. Um, the the power costs, energy costs that, that these rinks have. And and we all know that curling clubs don't make huge profits, right? So, you know, they, they they're always they're always looking at that break even, make a, a small profit, a small upgrade to the building every year, trying to keep ticking over. So so something like this is is hugely devastating to our sport. Now, I'm not just talking for Scotland here; I'm talking for the whole of the world. I think it's going to be really difficult for some of the the smaller clubs and um, to survive. Uh, I I really do hope we can you know gather around support them as a curling community try and keep them keep them afloat when uh, when they do come calling on us because you know we, we all want them to to stay open we all want to uh, remember our memories and our little local club where it all began and, and i don't think we can forget that um i think we need to do our best where we do everything possible to to help out with the curling community because they are very much being hit hard and it's 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 sad it's it's sad right where you know this is this is happening and uh, all we can do is 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 try and support them help them get through this um there are a few obviously in in scotland just now that that are managing to stay open um and and it's very it's hugely difficult hugely um challenging in terms of their restrictions, uh, the, the amount of work that are putting in, but maybe not pulling in as much uh, in ice fees as they'd like, um, but doing their best to 
um, keep that membership alive, and and it's that hard balance. And I think some some of them are, are finding that balance very difficult. Another concern I'm hearing is that several of the smaller curling events on the World Curling Tour may not be back post-pandemic, at least not for a season or two, as sponsors might be more focused on their own recovery after the loss of revenues during the pandemic. What's your sense of it all, David? Do you believe that we risk uh, having a couple of lean years on tour as everyone gets back on their feet, as it were? I think it is going to be a hugely challenging, you know, not just the curling clubs we're talking about now. It's, you know, it's, we're talking about all these great sponsors, fans of curling, really, that just love to you know, throw, throw their businesses into, into that curling event, knowing that some of the world's best are going to be rolling into their hometown. And, and we rely so much of that um, throughout the world. And, and you just hope that those small businesses are, uh, are not only there, but can maybe come back and, and help again. And, and I'm just going to have to be supportive either way. We're, we're be asking our sponsors of these clubs to very much support us, but equally we're going to have to support those businesses and, and try and help each other get back afloat. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it sounds like a pretty sad world out there of what, what's ahead, but we just don't know, do we? So I think there's there's definitely going to be some some tournaments missing off the calendar next year. Um, but who knows? You know, you, you see it as an opportunity. You could look at it really positively and go, well, there may be some really cool things pop up now, some some more interest with, you know, the, the lead into the Olympics, more streaming. People are trying some of the, the cool streaming, um, team streaming where they can let each other sponsors know what's happening and take that into each competition, each club. So, yeah, there could be some some different things there. And finally, David, uh, last spring when British Curling announced the teams that would be part of your podium program for this season, some people were surprised that Sophie Jackson was not part of the group. Many had expected Sophie, a 2007 silver medalist at the World Juniors and a skip of your 2019 Scottish Women's Champions, to be part of the podium program for years to come. Can you perhaps shed some light on Sophie's exclusion from the podium program? A decision made by our selection panel and um, the data that that we looked at um, was that we're going to make some changes. And, and I think everyone has to understand that, you know, for every program, uh, they're funded for a reason. And, and our reason um, as a program is to achieve an Olympic medal and Olympic objectives. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll always analyse data. We'll look at how can we improve our program, improve our squad. And ultimately, at times, you have to make some some really harsh, difficult decisions and um, and, and progress those. And, and, and on this occasion, um, we made some decisions and, and changed some teams up. Um, you know, what's came from that? You, you, we've maybe Sophie's moved on to something different. She's moved on to a, a fantastic job, something she's absolutely going to love within Scottish Curling as, as their academy manager. And on the other side, we've we've saw the emergence of of a new team with with Jeannie Aiken and part of what was Team Jackson and and merged into something now that's that's certainly challenging even Muirhead on a team. So you know, there's there's just positives and, and, and negatives and, and everything that you do, right? But you have to really, uh, make some make some tough decisions out there, and and always bear in mind that um, you know we're, we're, we are funded as as an elite program to be um, to try and be the best in the world and, and gain those Olympic medals. And that does it for this week's episode. A big thank you to Megan Duhamel, Lauren Rajala, Nathan Young, and David Murdoch for joining me this week. Don't forget to check out the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. And also join us next week when we take a deeper look into Curling Canada's much-anticipated curling bubble. 
You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. 